The Blood Flow Restriction Podcast is brought to you by Saga, a world leader in innovative BFR technology. For more information on our Bluetooth-enabled auto-calibrating BFR cuffs, head over to our website at saga.fitness. And if you'd like to pick up a set for yourself, you can save 20% with the discount code BFRPODCAST. Welcome back to the Blood Flow Restriction Podcast. By the end of this episode, it's our aim that you'll have a base layer understanding of blood flow restriction. We'll talk about what it is, why somebody would implement it, in other words, the benefits and use cases, and then we'll finish by briefly discussing the mechanisms behind those benefits. If you're curious about the history of BFR, you know where did it come from, who came up with it, and how, refer to our last episode where we gave kind of a fast-forward version of the evolution of BFR over the last gosh, 50 years or so. But for now, let's dive into today's topic. So blood flow restriction is what it sounds like. It involves placing a cuff or a tourniquet around either your upper arm or upper leg during some form of physical activity to intentionally restrict blood flow. Now, that's pretty general as far as explanations go, right? We can do a bit better than that. So let's break it down. Remember, we've got blood flowing bidirectionally in the body. You have arteries carrying blood from your heart to the rest of the body, and then you have veins which are transporting that blood from the rest of the body back to the heart. So when we talk about blood flow restriction training as restricting blood flow in the body, the first question should be, well, which one? Are we restricting arterial, venous, both, uh, and how much? The aim with blood flow restriction training is to partially restrict arterial flow going into the muscle and fully or near fully restrict venous flow or blood flowing back to the heart. I promise we'll get into the why shortly, but I want to make sure we cover the what first. Let's take an example of a cuff inflating around your arm. How is it able to distinguish between arteries and veins, right? How does it partially restrict your arteries, but then fully restrict your veins? Well, I'm sure you've guessed the cuff is agnostic to arteries and veins. It just inflates to a specified pressure or applies a specified pressure to the limb. And the architecture of the human body determines the differing impacts on veins and arteries. Simply put, veins are easier to occlude than arteries are. And this is generally because veins have thinner walls and are closer to the surface of the skin. So if you just picture that scenario, during blood flow restriction training, we've got blood entering the muscle. Even though it's it's limited, blood is still entering the muscle, but no blood is getting back out. So obviously, this is going to lead to that limb. If we're back to the arm as an example that arm is going to temporarily swell or increase in size. And this is just a magnified version of something bodybuilders like to call the pump. If you've ever engaged in any form of resistance training, you definitely know what the pump is, right? You do a ton of curls, feels like your biceps are twice the size. It's the best thing ever. But what's happening here is that during these intense muscle contractions, and this is blood flow restriction aside, this is just traditional resistance training. During these muscle contractions, veins that would typically carry blood out of the muscle are compressed. But obviously, you've still got arteries carrying oxygenated blood into the muscle. So this leads to the muscle becoming engorged with blood. And that's the pump. The proper term would be cellular swelling. And cellular swelling not only transiently makes you look more muscular or more jacked, but it seems to itself be a contributor of muscle growth. So if you look at blood flow restriction, it just magnifies the pump because the veins that are typically only occluded during the intense muscle contractions. Well, now they're occluded between contractions and even while you're resting between sets, assuming you leave the cuff inflated. We'll come back to cellular swelling in a bit, but I want to make sure to lay the basics or the groundwork of blood flow restriction training first. So I said the goal with blood flow restriction is to restrict a certain percentage of blood flowing into the limb or arterial flow. In order to select a specific percentage or restrict a certain percentage, we need to know what full occlusion is or what's what's the pressure required to fully stop arterial flow. That 
is called arterial occlusion pressure, AOP. Sometimes people refer to it as LOP, which is limb occlusion pressure, but the two terms mean the same exact thing. They're just used interchangeably. If you've heard discussions around BFR, you've probably heard somebody say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm training at 50% LOP or 50% AOP. That number is referring to arterial flow. So in other words, I'm training at 50% AOP. That means I'm training with 50% of arterial flow into the limb occluded and 100% of venous flow out of the limb occluded. And there you have it. Blood flow restriction training is just restricting a certain percentage of arterial flow and most or all venous flow while engaging in some form of physical activity. I mentioned earlier that the term physical activity is pretty vague, so let's unpack that really quick. The type of activity will just depend on the adaptation you're after. So for strength and muscle gain adaptations, occlusion is going to be applied during physical activity as in resistance training or you know lifting weights. For endurance adaptations, the BFR cuffs will be applied during some form of aerobic capacity training. Cycling is a pretty good example, you know, assault bike, standard bike, some form of aerobic capacity training. We will dive into science and protocols behind all of those in later episodes, but the point of this episode is to lay the groundwork for the basics of blood flow restriction. And now that you have that base layer understanding of at least what the methodology is, why exactly would somebody want to do this? You know, what are the benefits? The elevator pitch for BFR training is that it can allow you to achieve similar adaptations in strength, hypertrophy, and endurance while training at lower intensities. In the context of resistance training, intensity is in reference to the load or weight that you train with. So BFR can allow you to achieve similar increases in strength and hypertrophy that you'd see from heavier lifting while training with those lighter loads. This has been repeatedly demonstrated in research. Subjects are able to see increases in strength and muscle size while training with loads as light as 20% of their 1RM or 1 rep max. Breaking that down using round numbers, let's say my max squat is 100 pounds. Sad day for Stephen Borden. Generally, for me to achieve any sort of appreciable strength and muscle gain adaptations, training at 20% of that 1RM or 20 pounds, you know, just loading 20 pounds on the bar. Well, I guess you wouldn't even load 20 pounds on the bar. I wouldn't even be training with a barbell. Uh, putting 20 pounds on my back, put it that way, it just wouldn't be enough mechanical tension through the muscle to drive any sort of meaningful stimulus. Now, for reasons that we'll discuss shortly in the mechanism section, if I were to load that same 20 pounds on my back, utilizing BFR cuffs, obviously training with the proper volume, I would have a much greater chance of achieving strength and muscle gains than I would without the BFR cuffs. In the context of endurance or aerobic capacity adaptations, intensity is generally in reference to a percentage of your VO2 max. Again, research has repeatedly demonstrated benefits in terms of aerobic capacity as well. Broadly speaking, if you were to perform the same low to moderate intensity endurance session with and without BFR, so you do, you know, you perform one session without BFR cuffs, and then you perform it again with BFR cuffs. Broadly speaking, you'd achieve significantly greater endurance adaptations from the BFR session. Again, we'll get into the reasons behind that in the mechanism section, but that's the thesis of blood flow restriction training. High intensity results with lower intensity training. You'll probably notice a theme on this podcast where you'll consistently notice me jumping in going quick caveat, but I do have to throw in a quick caveat. It's important to acknowledge that like anything, there's nuance to this. Yes, there's now hundreds of studies demonstrating BFR's efficacy and Brief pause. If you're enjoying the BFR podcast and want to learn more about BFR training, we've put together a free BFR ebook for you. The comprehensive guide to BFR training covers everything from basics of BFR physiology to benefits, protocols, research reviews, and more. You can find a link to download it in the show notes or directly on our site at saga.fitness. All right, let's get back to the show. Building strength, hypertrophy, and endurance. 
We're now at a place where there's dozens of meta-analyses and systematic reviews on the topic, all generally pointing in a favorable direction for BFR. But we are not suggesting and will never suggest that BFR can replace traditional resistance training or traditional endurance, you know, higher intensity endurance training. For example, I would never tell a power lifter that they could just, you know, unload the heavy weights, stop training, you know, closer to their one RM, strap some BFR cuffs on, train at 20% and, you know, they're good to go. That would be absurd. We know that there are neural adaptations or alterations that happen at the level of the nervous system from lifting very heavy loads that you probably just can't replicate with low load training. These alterations probably have everything to do with straining heavy under load, the actual act of lifting heavy. So again, despite whatever mechanisms BFR may offer, I'm not suggesting that it can replicate or replace that high load training. Ultimately, BFR should be seen as an augment or supplement to a powerlifter's training program, not a complete replacement. And it can be a really powerful augment or supplement under a special selection of circumstances, which we'll get into right now. So what are the situations that make sense to train with BFR? When when would somebody get the maximum benefit out of it? We've broken it down into four specific situations where BFR really shines. Situation number one, during rehabilitation. If you're fresh off an injury, it may not be safe or recommended for you to lift super heavy loads. It's probably fairly intuitive, but just take an example of an athlete coming off an ACL injury, probably not going to load the squat bar with the same weight that they were training at pre-injury. At the same time, though, you don't want to risk muscle loss. It's a real bummer. You, you put a lot of effort into putting muscle on. We know that muscle loss itself can at times be a contributor to further injury risk. So not only just for injury risk mitigation standpoint moving forward, but also just for the purposes of the hard work that you've put in putting on muscle, you don't want to risk further muscle loss during the rehabilitation process. So this is where BFR can be a really good augment to your training, allowing you to safely train at lighter loads, but still maintain some of that muscle tissue that you had pre-injury. Situation number two would be to manage fatigue. Lifting heavy is awesome. I love lifting heavy. We do know there are some downstream consequences or downstream impacts on fatigue that results just from loading heavy weights on your spine or in general, just moving heavy weights, even psychological fatigue. Picture an athlete during season who, again, wants to preserve that muscle tissue, but has to be ready for the game on Saturday or Sunday, needs to be as fresh as possible. This is where BFR can be useful because it can allow the athlete to still drive a strong muscle building stimulus while training at a lower load than he or she would otherwise need. Another example would be during a deload session or a deload week where you just don't have it in you to load up super heavy, but you want to bring down fatigue a bit while maintaining muscle. Again, that's another good option. That's why we have situation number two as fatigue management. Situation number three is while traveling or when you have limited access to weights. We've all been there, whether you're camping Maybe you're super bougie and you're in an overwater villa in Bora Bora. You know, sometimes the hotel doesn't have a good gym. Sometimes you have no weights at all. BFR cuffs are pretty easy to travel with. They're generally light and small. So they can allow you to get a much better stimulus than you would get without them in your body weight only or limited weight training session. And then situation number four, when there's a time constraint. We'll dive into the why behind this shortly, but generally BFR sessions are much shorter or have a shorter required time period to achieve a similar stimulus just because of the added stress of the occlusion. All right, so now we've gone through what BFR is. We've talked about the benefits and you know why and what situations BFR is really beneficial. Now let's go through the how. What are the mechanisms behind these benefits? It's important to note right off the bat that Though BFR has been researched pretty extensively for several decades now, some of its mechanisms are still unknown. In other words, we know it works. We're just trying to 
fully explain how. For the purposes of this episode, though, we're going to focus on three primary proposed mechanisms behind some of BFR's benefits. And those are cellular swelling, which we touched on a bit ago, hypoxia, and metabolite accumulation. To close the loop on cellular swelling, let's reiterate. So during blood flow restriction training, veins that would typically transport blood back out of the muscle towards the heart are occluded. This causes pooling in the area, and then that pooling causes the muscle cells to swell. Again, this potentially itself is a contributor of muscle growth, and this has to do with mechanoreceptors on the sarcolemma or the cell wall that can detect this stretch. That information is then communicated via signaling proteins through the cytoplasm into the nucleus of the muscle cell, effectively instructing it to grow. And that's cell swelling, mechanism number one in a nutshell. Mechanism number two is hypoxia. This is just a deficiency in the amount of oxygen reaching the tissues. It's important to differentiate, though, between systemic and local hypoxia. Systemic would be a body-wide oxygen deficiency. That can obviously be really dangerous at certain levels, and that's not what we're referring to in terms of blood flow restriction. Blood flow restriction causes localized hypoxia. We know that arteries are carrying oxygen, and when we partially occlude those arteries, then less oxygen is reaching the muscle tissue, causing local hypoxia in the muscles distal to the cuff. So you know, away from the cuff. It's proposed that hypoxia is another contributor to muscle growth, and this would be through stimulating muscle protein synthesis, increasing a greater spectrum of fast-twitch muscle fibers and other gene expression factors. And then lastly, we have metabolite accumulation. Now, this is just a downstream consequence of hypoxia since the low oxygen environment increases metabolites like lactate. Of course, metabolite accumulation occurs during traditional resistance training, but it's generally going to occur to a greater degree under load-matched BFR. Metabolite accumulation is almost certainly a stimulator of hypertrophy, at least part of that pie that leads to hypertrophy. With respect to endurance adaptations, training with higher lactate levels can lead to increased lactate buffering capabilities. Blood flow restriction has demonstrated now to significantly increase lactate accumulation with intensity-matched exercise. This can theoretically help replicate some of the increased lactate buffering capacity you'd achieve from higher-intensity endurance training, while training at a lower intensity. Lactate's a pretty fascinating molecule, and we'll probably end up devoting an entire episode to it specifically. Side note, if you're interested in kind of going down the lactate rabbit hole, Dr. George Brooks at Cal Berkeley's done some amazing work here. But for the purposes of this episode, we're going to leave it there for lactate. And there you go. If you made it this far, you've got a foundational understanding of blood flow restriction, what the benefits and use cases are, and then some of the primary proposed mechanisms behind those benefits. And that wraps up this episode. There's going to be plenty more episodes to come where we'll discuss protocols, interview practitioners, break down research, and lean into specializations around the science of blood flow restriction. But for now, have a great week, stay strong, and we'll see you on the next one.